thank you for the privilege of being here today on a special day and opening the book of God to the people of God because we know these words are always a savor of life unto life for all who receive them. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew 16. While you're turning, I just want to rejoice with you in what God is doing and raising a standard here in this important part of the world. And I was privileged four and a half or so years ago to be with you when you were just beginning one time and, and to see the fruition, not just of what you are now, but yet to even see with this new property what God wants you to become in the future is certainly exciting. And so I thank God for you sharing every victory, Ron, God gives you like it was my own, and pray for you and look forward to so many people coming to know Christ because you have uh, invested uh, yourselves and your lives in this family of faith that you call Rock Point Church. <clears throat> Some time ago in my own devotional reading, I was reading through the Gospels, as I've done for hundreds of times since I was 17 years old when I came to know Christ. But this particular time, I was captured by something as I read chapter after chapter. I know I'd seen it before, but it never really reached out and grabbed me like it did then. It was the number of times our Lord asked questions. On virtually every, in every chapter of the Gospels, He's asking questions. He's probing. He's... He's inquiring. He's asking questions. It didn't matter whether he was one-on-one -on -one with someone or in a small group or in a large crowd. He was always asking questions. Not because he was looking for answers. He was omniscient, all-knowing. He knew everything. He was wanting us to see where we were. And, and I began to count them. And there are 150 questions just in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that escape the lips of our Lord, that are recorded. And you know, John says in his Gospel that if all the words Jesus had spoken were recording, all the volumes couldn't contain them. So just 150 questions that are recorded. You know, leadership, some people think, is often characterized by punctuation marks. For example, some people think to be a good leader, you ought to be characterized by the period. Go here. Go there. Do this. Do that. And just barking commands to people. For some people, they think that's leadership. Other people say, no, the, the, the uh, punctuation mark that ought to characterize leadership is the exclamation point. Enthusiasm and excitement and the ability to cast the vision, get people to follow it and get caught up in the dream and in the vision. But you know, more often than not, real effective leaders are characterized by that symbol when you think about it that's bent in humility, we call the question mark. Leaders ask questions. Jesus asked questions. I began to write them down on legal pads. I came up with several pages of legal pads with every question that's recorded in the Gospels that our Lord asked. And I spent the next couple of weeks in my own devotional time just as though He were sitting right there with me asking me those questions. And I, I let Him ask me every one of the questions He asked in the Gospels. And as I meditated over those weeks in those questions, it began to dawn on me that virtually every epoch of Christian history, from the time of the Christ and His resurrection when He left and, 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 and the church was birthed, from then until now, Every epoch of Christian history along the way had a question from the lips of our Lord for whom and to which it was particularly applicable, much more so than any other of the other epochs of Christian history. And we're going to get in a moment to the question, I believe, the question of our time from the lips of our Lord that all of us must deal with. 
But just for example, take that first epoch of Christian history. After the resurrection, after Pentecost and the birth of the church, that first generation of believers and then spilling over in the second and third generation of believers we read about in Acts and, and on through church history, that first epoch of Christian history, they had a question from the lips of our Lord that was particularly applicable to them that was, in fact, the question of their time. It was the question that Jesus asked in John 13, verse 38, when He asked this question, Will you lay down your life? For my sake. Think about that. Now, for most of us in this room, that's not the question of our time. For few of us in this room have been, nor will we be asked the question, will you lay down your life for my sake? But I want to tell you something. If this Rock Point Church had been existing in the first century world, that would have been the question of your time. Will you lay down your life for my sake? And multiplied thousands of people in that early church went to their martyr's death with that question of their time ringing in their ears. Will you lay down your life for my sake? The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 11 that some were burned at the stake. Some were thrown to wild animals. Some were beheaded. Some had their bodies sawn in two. And it says the world wasn't worthy of them. All of the apostles except John met their martyrs' deaths. Spilling over into that next generation and the next, Polycarp, the great pastor of the church at Smyrna, was burned at the stake. Ignatius, the pastor of the great missionary church at Antioch that we read about in Acts, was thrown to the wild animals. Those early believers in that first epoch had a question of their time. It was the question of John 13, 38. Will you lay down your life? for my sake. And they went to their martyr's death answering that question. And because they did, we're here today. And the church then marched on through history. till we come to the second epoch of Christian history. And another question from the lips of our Lord emerged, and it became the question of their time. It was a question Jesus asked in Matthew chapter 22, verse 42, when He asked this question, What think ye of the Christ? Whose Son is He. Because you see, when the church grew a little bit, there came a heresy into the church. Led by a man named Arius. He was from Alexandria. He began to propound that Christ was really not co-equal and co-existent with the Father, but that the Father had created Jesus. And so that heresy brought the early church to a place called Nicaea in 325 A.D. Have you ever heard of the Nicene Creed? It issued out of that council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. Athanasius was the strong defender of the faith who faced the question of his day, What think ye of the Christ? Whose son is he? And there at Nicaea they settled once and for all that yes, Christ is the co-equal, co-existent Son of the Father of the same nature of the Father, God Himself. And the church faced the question of their time. And so they continue to march through history until we come to the next epoch of Christian history and we find the church in a dark period held in the clutches of the Roman popes. And another question emerged from the lips of our Lord that became the question of their time. It was the question that we find in John chapter 11, verse 40, when our Lord asked this question, Did I not say unto you that if you would believe, if you would be people of faith and faith alone, if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? And so armed with the question of His time, the question, will you be people of faith and faith alone? Will you believe? 
armed with the question of his time, Martin Luther took his 95 theses and nailed them to the church door at Wittenberg. And the glory of God in that great faith movement of the Reformation began to sweep through Europe, through the likes of Calvin and Zwingli and Knox over in Scotland and Hubbyer and Mance, our Baptist forefathers, and who also met many martyrs' deaths. But that great faith movement began to sweep through because they faced the question of their time in a strategic moment in church history. Did I not say to you that if you would be people of faith and faith alone, if you'd believe, you'd see the glory of God? Because they did, we're here. And the church kept marching through the centuries. Until we come to the next epoch of Christian history, and another question from the lips of our Lord emerged that became that epoch's question of their time. It was a question we find Jesus asking in Luke 18.8. There in Luke 18.8, Jesus asks this question. When the Son of Man returns, will He find faith on the earth? When Christ returns, when I return, Jesus asks, will I find the faith, the gospel, being spread over all the earth and burdened by the question of His time and their time? Men like William Carey and Hudson Taylor and David Livingston left the comforts and confines of home and hearth for faraway places like Africa and China and Burma and India. And the great modern missionary movement was begun and spreads until this very day because those people in that epoch of time faced the question of their time. When the Son of Man returns, will He find faith on the earth? And, and the gospel began to continue to march through the centuries until we come to the first part of the last century, the 20th century. And particularly in the Western world and most specifically in America after, and Europe. The question of John 6, verse 67 became the question of, the, of their time. For Jesus asked this question, Will you also go away? Will you also go away? And we watched in the first part of the 20th century as one mainline denomination after another, after another, after another went away from the faith of their founding fathers. Went away from the doctrinal truths of the Word of God to follow after liberalism and her twin children of pluralism and inclusivism. But thank God there were believers who faced the question of their time. Will you also go away? And, and didn't go away. Bible churches and many Baptists began to, to, to redirect their efforts to the foundational truths of the Word of God and the doctrinal truths of this book. And we continue to march through time until we come to this very time, this epoch, your time, your generation, and the next few years before us. And a new epoch of Christian history and a new question from the lips of our Lord has emerged that has become the question of our time in our generation in a culture and in a world of pluralism. It's the question we find in our text in Matthew 16, in verse 15, where our Lord asked this question, Who do you say that I am? In a world of pluralism, Christ, who said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life, and no one comes to the Father unless He comes through me. This is the question of our time. Who do you say that I am? For some of you, it's not just a question of our time. It's a question of eternity. Not who do you think. Not who do you wish me to be. Not who do other people say and write that I am. Who do you say? Who do you profess? Who do you say that I am? I'm convinced it's a question of our time. You know, there are only two kinds of leadership. It doesn't matter whether that leadership's in the church or at home or in the business world or in the political arena, this being political season again. We just happen to see it more uh, prominently applicable there. 
But there are two kinds of leadership. There are those who lead by public consensus. In other words, those kind of folks, they don't lead out on an issue until they get all their polling data in. And when they get all the polling data in, they get the consensus of the people, they see what the people are thinking, what the people want. Then they take a stand, they lead on that. They lead by public consensus. There's another kind of leadership. That is those who lead by personal conviction. Down in the very core of their being, they have some convictions personally about what is right and what is wrong, and they lead that way, come what may. You see, those who lead by public consensus lead people to do what people want to do. And those who lead by personal conviction lead people to do what people need to do. Now, our Lord, in the context of Matthew 16, our text, our Lord knew how prone those disciples were going to be and, incidentally, how prone you and I were going to be to leave our personal convictions when we got in a culture all around us that smacked in the face of those personal convictions. He knew how prone we would be to leave our personal convictions for the convenience and the acceptance of public consensus when we got back out there at school or got back out there at the office or got back out in the social arena. And so what did He do in Matthew 16? He took the disciples away from the Galilean crowds. They'd been immersed down there on the northern shore of the Galilee. Thousands of people had been flocking out to them. They'd been expending themselves physically and emotionally and spiritually. They were drained, having given themselves to those crowds. And He took them away from those crowds. And in Matthew 16, He marched them 25 miles north. Now, they didn't... They didn't I, I, I uh, map-quested my, from my house here. It's 23.9 miles today, Ron. They didn't go out and get in the SUV like I'm going to do at the end of this service and go 23.9 miles. He marched them 25 miles. They walked all the way up to the headwaters of the Jordan, all the way up to the foothills of Mount Hermon, all the way up to that place Philip had built in honor of the Caesar that we call Caesarea Philippi. And he got them up there around a fire that night, and we come to our text in Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13. And when Jesus had come to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, look at verse 13, who do men, who do the people, it's anthropos, it's generic, it doesn't mean males, it means the people, men and women, who do the people say that I, the Son of Man, am? Do you see that? Do you see it? That's the question of public consensus. Who do men say? What do the people say? What's the polling data showing? Who do men say? Who do the people say that I am? You know, we live in a world where what men think is a lot more important to some people than what God says. There may be some in this room today that the opinions of men are more, a lot more important than what this book says. They must be because some of us lead our lives by men's thoughts and men's opinions. That's the question of public consensus. And so the disciples said, some say you're John the Baptist, some Elijah, some Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And then Jesus in the next verse, verse 15, comes to the heart of the matter. But who do you say that I am? Do you see that? Now that, is the question of personal conviction. Who do you say that I am? 
There's a difference in verse 13 and verse 15. And the tragedy is, so many people today never get out of verse 13 because they live their lives consumed with what men think and what men say, which becomes far more important to them than what God says. And so Jesus asked the question of our time, Who do you say that I am? And God bless Simon Peter. Call him impulsive. Call him what you want to. He was inspired of the Holy Spirit. He said, you're the Christ. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. So I have two brief questions in the time that remains together today. Two brief points. First, I want us to look in verse 13 at the question of public consensus. Who do men say that I am? And then secondly, I want us to look finally at the question of personal conviction. Who do you say that I am? First of all, in verse 13, Jesus asked them this question. The question of public consensus. Who do the people say that I am? I know what happened in Caesarea Philippi. As soon as He asked that question, look at the disciples. They just get in their little holy huddle. And when they do, they pull out all their polling data. They've been down there in the crowds. They've been talking to the people. They've been taking notes. They've been doing their data. They were, they, they were taking polls there as much as people are today. And so one of them spoke up and says, Well, my data shows that, that they're saying you're John the Baptist. you got the spirit of John the Baptist has come in you. You see, John the Baptist preached that message of repentance down in the Jordan Valley. And the first words out of Jesus' mouth in His first sermon were these... Except you repent, you'll perish. And so they're saying, you've got the spirit of John the Baptist. Another one interjected, no, not quite right. My polling data says that they're all saying that you're Elijah. That great man of God of the Old Testament, he was the man of prayer. Why, by the time we get to Matthew 16, they'd already seen Jesus do so much by prayer. They say you're Elijah. Another said, no, that's not what my data shows. The consensus of the people I've talked to is they're saying you're Jeremiah. I remember Jeremiah, he was the weeping prophet. Later they would see Jesus weep at the tomb of Lazarus. They would see him weep with those loud sobs on Palm Sunday Road. They're saying you're Jeremiah. And then another one interjected. Not what my data shows. They're saying that you're just another one of the prophets. Things haven't changed much, have they? Ask our Islamic friends who he is today. You know what they'll tell you? He's just another one of the prophets. Just not as great as Muhammad. You see what's happening here in verse 13? They're living in a world where what men say has become more important than what God says. It's a world in much like we're living in in this culture today. When what men think and what men say, who do the people say, becomes more important to some people than what God says. Now, what happens in a culture when that takes place? What happens in a culture? Just think of the culture in which we live around us. This culture where, where what men say is more important than what God says, what happens in a culture like that? It always gives rise to two things. Pluralistic compromise on the one hand, political correctness on the other. Now, if what men say is more important than what God says, it will give rise, first of all, pluralistic compromise. Pluralism in our religious jargon, what does that mean? It means the pluralists, you've all heard the pluralists. You've heard them on these talk shows on television. They say, oh, we're all going to the same place. We're all going to heaven. They're just a plurality of ways we get there. In other words, so some are, our Buddhist friends, are, they're, going, they're going on one road. Now, Hindus are going on one road. And, and Muslims are going on one road. And, 
And our Jewish friends are going on one road. And Roman Catholics are going on one road. And Mormons are going on one road. And Jehovah's Witnesses are going on one road. And pagan animalists are going on one road. And we born-again believers are going on one road. We're all going to the same place. We're just getting there in different ways. There's a plurality of ways to get there. That's what happens when what men say is more important than what God says. It gives rise to pluralism. It has infected our culture. Permeated our culture. But I'll tell you another thing that happens. Not only pluralistic compromise... Political correctness. Now, in the Christian jargon, to be politically correct means you've got to be an inclusivist. Now, an inclusivist means that that's one who believes that everybody is, quote, included in the atonement. And so we don't want to offend anybody. So the inclusivist says, uh, says that, yes, Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world. And because He died for everybody, then you don't have to be born again or saved or converted, whatever terminology you use, because everybody's included in the atonement. It, it, it makes its border right there along the border of universalism that just says everybody's going to go to heaven anyway. That's the culture in which we live because it's a culture that can't get out of verse 13. Because when what men say becomes that important, then it gives rise to pluralism and inclusivism. Why should we be concerned about those things in the church of Jesus Christ? Because they dramatically, they dramatically alter the nature of our faith. That's why we've got this question of our time. Who do you say that I am that's so prevalent and important for the church? Because what does pluralism do, for example? How does it alter the nature of our faith? Pluralism, this idea there are all these roads that go to the same place, it affects our doctrine, what we believe, our message. Because if you believe in pluralism, there's some things you don't even need to worry about doctrinally anymore. Why, 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 why would you need to believe in the virgin birth of Christ? Or His sinless life? Or His vicarious death? Or His bodily resurrection? Or any of the other great doctrinal truths of the Word of God? Pluralism affects our doctrine. What we believe, our, our message. What does inclusivism do? This idea that everybody's included in the atonement, what does it do? It affects not our doctrine, but our duty. Not what we believe, but how we behave. Not our message, but our mission. Because if you believe everybody's included in the atonement and going to heaven anyway, there are two things you don't need in the church anymore. You don't need evangelism. You don't need missions. You ever wonder why these major mainline denominations that left the faith of their forefathers and the truths of the Word of God, you go to their denominational headquarters today and there are two, two departments you don't see there anymore, an evangelism department or a missions department. They don't send missionaries like they used to. Because it dramatically alters the nature of our faith. Now, this idea that Christ is the only way to heaven is not some Christology or theology that has made in America stamped on it like a lot of people try to make it be today. It's a Christology that has made in heaven stamped on it. It was delivered to us in the body of Jesus Christ who knew no sin but became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. It got to us by the martyrdom of millions of believers who went before us, who gave their lives for this truth. And today, we're stewards. Uh, in the midst of a world of pluralism and inclusivism, we are stewards of this glorious gospel. So there's the question of public consensus. Who do the people say that I am? But I want us to move there from there to, to, to really the heart of the issue, finally. The question of personal conviction. Jesus says, well and good, but He says in verse 15, what I want to know is this, who do you say that I am? You see, there's an alternative to inclusivism and pluralism. 
It's what we call the exclusive message of the Gospel. The exclusivity of Jesus Christ Himself. That as He said, I am the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life, and no one comes to the Father unless He comes through me. Who do you say that I am? Now, you, you, I don't know where you drink coffee or eat breakfast in the, out here around this area or wherever you live. You just saddle up in a coffee shop tomorrow around the table with a bunch of men or women that are sitting there uh, drinking coffee, talking. Just say, well, pardon me, but I just wanted to share with you that Christ is the only way to heaven. He said nobody's going to get there unless they come through. You might as well go out to DFW and get on a plane, fly over to Madrid, and get out in the bull ring, get a red cape, and get in front of a raging bull because that smacks in the face of a culture out there that believes there's so many ways to go to heaven if they even believe there's a heaven. You remember when, when uh, 9-11 happened? You remember, can you remember the days right after that? And the, and the weeks right after that? It looked like here in America some mercy drops of revival were falling. People came back to the church in little greater numbers. People were praying. In fact, the president, whom I love and pray for, had a great prayer service at the National Cathedral. I watched it on television. Maybe some of you did. And there they gathered in the National Cathedral a couple of days after 9-11. All the big muckety-mucks were there. The, the cabinet and the joint chiefs and the, and the Senate and the Congress and all the government leaders. And they were there. And I thought, man, this nation, what, how wonderful is this? And we started singing that great, great hymn, A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. My heart was leaping for joy. I said, I can't wait till we get to that second verse. And we skipped it. And we sang the third and the fourth. And we sang all those verses about God, a mighty bulwark and God. But we skipped the second verse. You know what it says? Listen to it. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side. The man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who this might be? Christ Jesus! It is He! Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts is His name. From age to age the same. And He must win the battle. But He has no place in a pluralistic, inclusivist culture around us. And thus we're faced with the question of our time that's as applicable to us as any question in any epoch of Christian history. Who do you say not who do you think. Who do you profess in this culture? Who do you say that I am? That's the question of our time. Back to Caesarea Philippi. When Jesus asked that question in verse 15, it's in the language of the New Testament, it's emphatic. Now that simply means that in the sentence structure, He took the you, Y-O-U, and He put it up at the front of the sentence. And so here's the way He asked it. What about you? You. You, you, you alone, you and no one else, you and you only. What about you? Who do you say that I am? And God bless Simon Peter. He answered, and Simon Peter answered in, in the emphatic. He put the you at the front. And here's the way Peter answered it. You, Lord, and you only. You and you alone. You and no possibility of anyone else. You and you only. You and you alone are Christos, the one and only Christ, Messiah, anointed one. You and you alone are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What motivated Simon Peter who made that great confession to meet his own martyr's death and face the question of his time, will you lay down your life for my sake? Tradition tells us he was crucified along with his wife. She first, so he had to watch every moment of the agony of her death. 
And then when it came time for Simon Peter to be crucified, he made a strange request. He said to his executioners, I'm not worthy to be crucified in the same manner as my Savior. And he requested to be crucified upside down. In fact, that's why when you go into church and you see Peter's cross, it's always an inverted cross. That's the way he met his martyr's death. What motivated Simon Peter to die a death like that? Was it because he believed in pluralism? Did he believe there are all these roads that got him to heaven? No. He believed Christ was the only way to eternal life. And he gave his life for that. And would to God I could bring him up here on this platform today physically and he could speak to you audibly. I believe he'd say the same thing to you about this issue that he said in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, when he said, Neither is there salvation in any other. For there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. Save that name of Jesus. I would to God. What, what motivated Paul, who gave us almost half our New Testament, what motivated Paul to meet his martyr's death? Do you remember how horrified we've been with the insurgency in Iraq over the last few short years when they beheaded so many of those captives? chopped their heads off, and maybe we found a head and didn't find a torso in many cases. How appalled at the barbaric nature of that. That's the way Paul met his martyr's death. He was beheaded just like that. He had his head chopped off outside the city gates of Rome. What motivated, what motivated this great apostle Paul to put his head willingly down on that chop block and meet his martyr's death? Did he give his life because he believed everybody was included in the atonement and everybody's going to heaven anyway? No, he didn't recant his faith because he was convinced Christ was the only way to eternal life and no one could get there through him. And would to God I could bring Paul up here today. You know, his body was beaten he was left for dead at Lystra when he was stoned. He was shipwrecked. His God, what he went through. Would to God we could bring that little Jew up here with his bent over broken body to give testimony to you today of the gospel of Jesus Christ and its exclusivity. He would say the same thing to you he said in Galatians 1 when he wrote to the Galatians and us and said, should we or some angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you, let him be accursed. I wish I could bring John, that old inspired apostle over 90 was exiled out on Patmos. Just to give testimony to you today. What did he believe? He would say the same thing to you he said in 1 John 5. He that hath the Son hath life. And he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. And the wrath of God abides on him. Jesus is the way the Father's house. Question of personal conviction. Who do you say that I am? You know, when we tell this world that Christ is the only way to eternal life, we're called narrow-minded. In fact, some people think Baptists are so narrow-minded a gnat can stand on the bridge of our nose and peck out of both eyes at the same time. Pretty narrow-minded. But do you know, I want to remind you, that's the nature of truth. All truth is narrow. You can't have truth without being. That's the nature of truth. What about mathematical truth? Mathematical truth is narrow, if you hadn't thought about it. Two plus two equals four, not five. You know, when I used to put back there in kindergarten, first grade, if I put three or five on a test, that put, teacher put that big X on there, that used to burn me off. I thought that was sort of narrow-minded. But, but mathematical truth is narrow. Two plus two equals four, not five. 
Scientific truth is narrow when you think about it. Water freezes at 32 degrees Fahrenheit. Not 35, not 36, not 37. You get a glass of water and you take it out on your porch to watch it freeze when it's 35, 36, 38 degrees. You sit there and watch it freeze and something else is going to freeze over before that water does because water freezes at 32 degrees Fahrenheit. Scientific truth is narrow. Geographical truth is narrow. We live in Texas. We're bordered Oklahoma with the Red River, not the Mississippi River. Historical truth is narrow. John Wilkes Booth shot Abraham Lincoln at the, in the Ford Theater in Washington, D.C. He didn't stab him in the back and in the Bowery in lower Manhattan. So why should we be surprised when all truth is narrow that theological truth is narrow? Jesus said what? Enter in by the straight gate, for narrow is the way that leads to life, and few there be that find it. It's a narrow way. So we come with the question of personal conviction. It's a question of our time. Will we answer it? Will the church of Jesus Christ answer this question that we might continue to march through the histories like these epochs before us? Who do you say? Now, for some of you, it's the question of eternity because you've never dealt with it. Some of you in this room today have never gotten out of verse 13 because you've lived your life more interested in what men say or what men thought of you or what people thought about you or what people said than in what God says. And Jesus said, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one comes to the Father unless He comes to me. So for some of you, it's a question of eternity. Or he asked you today, and he brought you to this place today to ask you this question. Who do you? You. What about you, he asked. You and you only. You and you alone. You. 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 Who do you say? Not who do you think. Who do you profess? Who do you say that I am? I was reading in Revelation this last week as I closed. I was reading about that great prayer service praise service in Revelation. When all the redeemed of all the ages are gathered around the throne of God and we're worshiping and praising the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, what a beautiful scene of worship and praise. And caught up in the midst of that praise service, we, I look and, and there come the patriarchs of the Old Testament. Read about them all my life. Their faith. Abraham, who left Ur of the Chaldees to go to a land he'd never met. Abraham and Isaac and, J- Isaac who, and Jacob and, and and Joseph and all those men of faith, the patriarchs, and they come walking by. But I'm not one of them. And I look back here and here come the sweet psalmist of Israel. David and Asaph and the, the sons of Korah. I've read so many of their psalms. I've sung so many of their psalms in my own heart and spirit. So many of their psalms have comforted me in times of distress and heartache. And here they come walking by. But I'm not one of them. And in the midst of that great service, I look over here and here come a bunch of guys with their shoulders back. The prophets of the Old Testament who all pointed to Jesus. Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and the minor. And they all come marching by. But I'm not one of them. And then I look and behold, and here come the glorious apostles of the New Testament. I can make them out. Peter and Andrew and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew. And they all come marching by but I'm not one of them. And then I look and see a mass of people coming. The martyrs of the church. James and Peter and 
uh, Polycarp and Ignatius and Perpetua, that young mother put to death in Carthage, and Savonarola and Tyndale and Huss, and multiplied hundreds and hundreds of thousands, millions come marching by the martyrs of the church. But I'm not one of them. And then I look and behold, and I see a multitude of people which no man can number. Who are these? These are they whose robes have been washed white in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I belong to that glorious throng of the redeemed. Wash and be clean. Look and live. There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that blood. Lose all their guilty stains. You have a question for your time. Who do you say that I am. Jesus comes to your heart this morning to ask that question. It's a question of our time. Yes, we must stand to answer it. He's the only way. But for some of you, it's the question of eternity. And you must make that great confession with Peter. Lord, I believe You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Forgive me of my sin and come into my life right now. Make me what You want me to be. And Your sins He'll wash away. Your night He'll turn today. Your life He'll make over anew. No wonder the songwriter completed that song by saying, Dear dying Lamb, Thy precious blood will never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin.